I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Micah. Micah. Uh, the passage we're going to be looking at today is Micah chapter 5, the first five verses. And it's printed for you in your bulletins if you'd like uh, to look there. Continuing on in our Advent mini-series as we're looking at passages in the Old Testament that show us, that proclaim uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and His coming. And today we're coming to this wonderful little passage from the prophet Micah. I'm going to read beginning in verse 1 down through the beginning of verse 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you as we do every week, and we ask for the Holy Spirit to be present. That you would prepare our hearts and our minds to not simply read your word, not simply to have knowledge of it, but to actually be changed by it through the work of the Spirit. We pray, Father, that you would teach us about the Good Shepherd. And as we see our Good Shepherd today, Father, fill us with all hope as we see our Good Shepherd not only laying down his life for his sheep, but standing and shepherding us. We pray that you would do this for the glory of your name, but also for the good of all your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> pastor Brooks was a pastor that lived in the 19th century. He was born in 1835 and he died in 1893. And during his time of pastoring, he pastored churches in Philadelphia and in Boston. And if you noted the years in which he lived you'll notice that his time of pastoring was a time of perhaps one of the darkest times in our country during the Civil War. The Civil War and pastoring during that time period, pastoring congregations through those incredible, difficult and dark days was particularly hard on Pastor Brooks. And after the war was over, both he and the congregation recognized that he needed a break. So he took a sabbatical. And during his sabbatical, he went on a tour of the Holy Land. He went to Israel. Christmas Eve, 1865, Pastor Brooks found himself in the city of Jerusalem. And he decided on that wonderful night, the night of Christmas Eve, the day before Christmas, he decided to rent a horse and to ride the roughly six miles out of the city of Jerusalem, southwest, into the hill country of Judea. And he came to a little town called Bethlehem. 
Pastor Brooks rode out into the country outside of the town and rode into the fields. And as he did, he imagined the angels coming and speaking to the shepherds and announcing the arrival of the Christ child. He also imagined the wise men coming and bringing their presence to the newborn King Jesus. He rode and walked through the streets of Bethlehem. And as he did, he took in all the sights. He took in all the history. And it made a huge impression on him. In fact, the impression was so significant that several years after the fact, as he was reflecting on his visit to Bethlehem, Phillips Brooks decided to write a hymn. A hymn that we call, O Little Town of Bethlehem. We'll sing that hymn as we conclude our service in just a little bit. Phillips Brooks remained single his entire life. He had no children of his own, but he had a great love for children. And so he asked one of his uh, musician friends, Louis Redner, if he would come up with a tune that would be easy for children to sing and to remember. And it's the tune that we'll sing later in our service that is probably the most well-known tune to a little town of Bethlehem. Now, what, what inspired Pastor Brooks to write this hymn? It, it, was, it was as he was walking around the town of Bethlehem and remembering the events that are recorded for us in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 2. He could have just as easily reflected on the prophecy that we've read here from the Old Testament from Micah. This testimony, this prophecy was given 700 years before the events that took place in Matthew and the arrival of King Jesus. In fact, this prophecy of Micah is quoted in Matthew chapter 2, and we're told that it is fulfilled in the arrival of the Christ child of Jesus, of King Jesus coming and being born in Bethlehem. So we're going to look at this passage today and what Micah tells us about this one who would come. And we'll see that he's going to give us a description of the promised Messiah to come, of King Jesus. He'll tell us that this one to come, the promised Messiah, King Jesus, would be an overlooked king. He would be the true and ultimate shepherd king. He would be the global king. And he would be the future king. Before we jump into Micah, it'd be helpful for us to get some understanding of the context into which Micah was writing. As we've been studying 2 Samuel in our, in our sermon series this school year, now we've been talking about David. David lived around the year 1000 uh, BC. And after David died and his reign came to an end, his son Solomon took over the kingdom. And after Solomon died, the kingdom of God was split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, referred to as Israel, eventually was captured by the Assyrian army in 722 and the people were exiled. The southern kingdom, referred to as Judah, would eventually be captured by the Babylonians and taken into exile in 586. But in between those time periods, God sent the prophet Micah, to call the southern kingdom of Judah and the capital city of Jerusalem to return to the Lord their God, to repent of their sins and to put their faith once again in the one true God. 
Now, the, the Assyrian army was knocking on the door of the capital city of Jerusalem. That's what we're reading about here in verse 1, where it says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The Assyrians were a large and powerful army. They were ruthless in their military efforts. They were people who were known for brutality. They were known for humiliating their enemies. That's the picture that we're getting here in verse 1 where the king of Israel, the king of Judah is being struck in the face with a rod. These were unforgiving people. And so Judah, the people of God, were in a serious and dangerous time. But it wasn't just a dangerous and serious time because of what was happening outside of Jerusalem with the Assyrians threatening to come in and take over the city. There was also an issue going on within the people of God, within Judah, within Jerusalem. God's people had fallen into corruption and disobedience and unfaithfulness and sin. Idolatry was rampant among the people of God. The political and religious leaders were corrupt, doing unspeakable things to their own people. There was a general culture of dishonesty and injustice. And the people living during that time had a face of being religious. But their hearts were far from being genuine. And so it's into that situation that the Lord God called Micah and sent Micah to preach and to proclaim the good news of the gospel. His parents gave him the name Micah. It means who is like the Lord. He came from a small town that we read about in verse 1 of chapter 1 called Morsheth. A little town west of Jerusalem. It's a small country village. Uh, Micah would have been very rural in his mindset, in his experience. He wasn't accustomed to the big city life of Jerusalem. He had an understanding and sympathy with farmers and shepherds. And to this man... At this time, the Lord God gave such an incredible special prophecy, a description of Jesus, the Messiah and King who would come. And he tells the people that Jesus would be an overlooked king, a shepherd king, a global king and a future king. And the reason why he gives them those pictures, it was meant to wake up the people of God and to fill them with hope and strength as they would wait for King Jesus to come. And so now, as God's people, we're not waiting for the first advent. We're waiting eagerly for his return, for his second advent. But this passage, no less than for the people reading it for the first time, is meant to fill us with hope and strength as we wait. So let's see what Micah tells us about this King Jesus who is to come. He tells us that Jesus is the overlooked king. If you look at verse 2, Micah tells us that King Jesus would come from the town of Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. When the people heard that the Messiah, that this ruler, that this king who would come and rule the people of God was to come out of Bethlehem, they would have been very surprised. Bethlehem was an easy town to overlook. It was small, it was obscure, it was an insignificant town. 
In fact, it was so small that as God told them who, uh, where it was going to, where the Savior was going to come from, He had to actually give the qualifying of the district of what He was talking about. It is Bethlehem Ephrathah. That's to distinguish it from another Bethlehem that's in the north area of Zebulun. It would be like if you were, if you were going out traveling somewhere, and uh, you, you somebody asked you where you were from, and you said, "Well, I'm from Rochester." Well, depending on who you were talking to and where you were, where you were at the time, the, they would probably say, oh, Rochester, New York. You'd have to say, no, I'm from Rochester, Minnesota. And that's the same kind of thing that here is God is saying is God is telling the people the Savior would come from the town of Bethlehem. Oh, you mean the bigger town up in Zebulun? No, no, no. Bethlehem, Ephrathah. It was so small and insignificant that we read in verse 2 that they weren't, they didn't even have a clan, they weren't even considered one of the clans of Judah. The word clan there is a military term. And what God is saying is that this town was so small, so easily overlooked, so insignificant, they didn't even have the resources to pull together their own defenses. They, they had to rely on others to do that for them. Phillips Brooks captures this picture in his hymn. Uh, in the first verse, in the first couple of lines, uh, he says, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. This, this, was, a, this was a sleepy little town. It was easy to overlook. It was easy to not even notice. Kind of like Jesus. Jesus is the overlooked king. Jesus, too, is insignificant in the eyes of the world. When we get to the Gospels and we're told about the circumstances of his birth, we're told that not only was he born in this little town called Bethlehem, hardly a speck on the map, but he was put into a manger. He was put into a feeding trough. There was no place for him in the inn. He lived a relatively quiet and unknown life until his early, early 30s. He learned the vocation of carpentry. And even as he started to become more well-known in the area, he still lived a simple life. He was poor. He had very few friends. And lots of people simply dismissed him. But this was the second person of the Trinity. This is King Jesus. And King Jesus was easily overlooked. Now, before we move on and see the other things that the other pictures that Micah is giving us here, let me just give you two quick applications as we reflect on Jesus as the overlooked king. Jesus might have been easy to overlook initially, but we know the rest of the story. And we know that to overlook King Jesus is to do so to our peril. To go through this season or to go through life without putting your hope and trust and faith in King Jesus means eternal separation from God. Not recognizing that the baby who was born in the manger in Bethlehem is none other than King Jesus that we read about in the book of Revelation that has all power and authority at his disposal and will dispense with all evil. To overlook Jesus means to walk around in this life carrying the weight of your sin and shame and guilt on yourself and then to die and appear before the Lord God Almighty and have to pay for those sins yourself. So don't overlook King Jesus. 
Don't overlook not just the reason for the season, but the reason for your existence. That you would believe and love and serve King Jesus. Don't overlook King Jesus. One other quick application. Perhaps you are a Christian and you know what it looks and feels like to be overlooked. If that's you, then take heart. You might be overlooked by this world. You might feel small. You might feel obscure. You might feel insignificant and unimportant and unnoticed. But if you are one of God's children, then you are known by King Jesus. Far from being insignificant and unimportant, you are greatly loved. You are known and loved from before the foundation of the world. You are of infinite worth and dignity because you've been created in the image of the Creator and you have been purchased with the blood of King Jesus Himself. So it doesn't matter if the world thinks of you as insignificant, if you are easily overlooked by the world, because you are known and you are loved by King Jesus. The second picture that Micah gives us here is that Jesus is the shepherd king. We actually read it earlier in our service, but if you'll look again at verse 4, we, we hear these incredible words. He, that's speaking about the king, the ruler, King Jesus, who would come. He, will still, he, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. What an incredible, encouraging picture this is. King Jesus Standing and shepherding his flock. He's standing. Is there any better posture for a shepherd? It's, it's the posture of being attentive and, and of actively protecting and of serving. This is the posture of the good shepherd. And notice, not only is he standing to protect, he is standing to protect his flock. He knows us as his sheep. Just as a shepherd knows his sheep, he knows which ones he needs to pay special attention to because they tend to run off more quickly. He knows the ones that he needs to pay special attention to because they tend to bite more quickly. Jesus knows his flock. He knows us as his people. And notice how he stands and shepherds us. He does so in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. He has all power and all authority at his command, and he uses it to shepherd his people. As we see this picture of Jesus as our shepherd, let's reflect for a minute how he shepherds us. Our shepherd, our good shepherd, we're told in the scriptures, lived a life of perfect love, in obedience to his father, the life that we were supposed to live but never do. And then he went to the cross and died the death that we deserve to die. So that all who are in Christ might receive forgiveness for all of their sins and be credited with the righteousness of King Jesus to their accounts. Our shepherd, our, our good shepherd lays down his life for us. And in doing so, he secures peace between God and us Forever. And he does it entirely by his grace. And it's received entirely by faith. That's part of what Jesus does as our good shepherd. 
But notice we see the effects of what he does as, what he does as well in verse 4 at the end. And they, that is his flock, his people, they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. Not only is our King Jesus, our shepherd who lays down his life for us, but he also ensures our security. He not only achieves forgiveness for us and the righteousness credited to our accounts and achieves peace with God for us, but he continues to stand over us and to shepherd us and to protect us, making us secure. The Hebrew words here for dwell secure actually have the sense of sitting. Do you see this wonderful picture? Our shepherd. Our great shepherd stands and shepherds his flock with all power and authority of the Lord God Almighty so that we, his people, can sit in security. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, isn't this what Jesus told us about himself in John chapter 10? Jesus said the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. That's why Micah says here at the beginning of chapter five, uh, beginning of verse five, that Jesus, who is our shepherd, the one who enables us to dwell secure, is himself our peace. He is the one who secures it. He is the source of it, as we saw last week in Isaiah chapter 9. He is the prince of peace. He is the guarantee of our peace. So as God's people, we should be filled with hope and encouragement and strength because we see King Jesus standing and shepherding us. Be at peace as God's people, knowing that in Christ you dwell secure. You can sit in his sovereign security. Jesus is the shepherd king. The third picture that Micah gives us here is that Jesus is the global king. You can see that at the end of verse 4. They shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. Now, in Micah's context, as he was writing this, God's people were a nation. But what we're being told here and throughout the scriptures is that with the arrival of King Jesus... People would be gathered in from everywhere to be part of God's family. People would come from the ends of the earth and be brought into the family of God. It reminds us, if you were here a little over a year ago when we were looking at the book of Revelation, and we got to chapter 7 and we got this, this picture that John gets a vision of what heaven looks like. 
after Jesus returns and we read in chapter seven. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and carrying or crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. This incredible picture of people from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages gathered together as the people of God, as the flock of God. You can see the sense of it also in verse three. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. It reminds us of what Jesus said again back in chapter 10 of John. I have other sheep who are not of this fold and I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. It's this incredible picture of a global king who would not only cause the gospel of good news to go out to all of the nations, but he would gather in his people from every nation and language and nationality. So what does this mean for us today? Well, it means that there is unity among those who are in Christ Jesus. There is unity among those who are part of God's family. Despite different skin colors and ethnicities and nationalities and language, there is unity and fellowship for those who are in Christ Jesus. Despite different educational backgrounds and political convictions and vocational callings, there is unity and fellowship for those who are in Christ Jesus. Think about the significant divide and differences in the New Testament church between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. That difference, that divide between God's people, between being Jewish and Gentile in the first century is most likely greater than any difference we have today. And yet the New Testament is full with instructions and direct commands for God's people to love each other with a fierce love, to care for and to serve one another, to treat one another with the highest level of dignity and respect, to outdo one another in showing love and honor and sacrificial service. In fact, Paul, as he was talking about that sense of oneness between the Jewish and Gentile Christians in the first century, as he came to Ephesians chapter 2, he actually quotes from Micah chapter 5. Paul says, For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if that was true for the Jewish and Gentile Christians that had such a significant divide in the first century, how much more so is it true for us today? Now, there's an obvious application here for how we should treat and interact with brothers and sisters in Christ that come from other churches, that come from other denominations. 
But rather than drilling down into that specific application, let me get more specific for a moment with the people that call this church their church home. As a pastor friend of mine says, let me go to Medlin a little bit. We're in a potentially dangerous time right now. I'm not talking about the dangers of the COVID virus, but the collateral impact of this pandemic. We have strong, informed, and thought through differences of opinions and convictions about things like masks and executive orders from our governor and vaccines. By God's good providence and grace, the measure of peace and unity that we have experienced within our church family is notable. But we must remain vigilant in proactively pursuing and practicing our unity in Christ. The danger of losing sight of that unity that we have in Christ and allowing the circumstances of our life to cause rifts in our church family is real. And if the Jewish and Gentile Christians in the first century could live together within the family of God, then by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in us, we can do that too. But we need to be thoughtful, we need to be intentional, and we need to be proactive in doing so. And it's never going to be done perfectly. And so we need to be people who are quick to ask for and to grant forgiveness to one another. There's one last picture here that Micah gives us of the King Jesus to come. And that is that King Jesus would be a future king. If you look back at verse 3. We're told, therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Micah was giving a very clear indication that his prophecy would be fulfilled sometime in the future. Uh, There would be some period of time that God would uh, give Israel over to judgment. And then... Uh, At some time, at one time, until the time, then the Savior would come when she who is with child gives birth. And notice at the end of verse 2, we're told that this one who who was to come was from of old. He was from ancient days. This is the descendant of King David, but he's older than that. This is the one who had been promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. But he's older than that. He is the second person of the Trinity who has been in existence from eternity past. But Micah says the one who is from of old, the one who is ancient, is also the one who is a promised ruler, a promised king who will come in the future. The the people that were hearing this prophecy for the first time had to wait 700 years until the promise would be fulfilled. Until the first arrival of that promised king. 700 years. It's a long time to wait. Let alone waiting from the time that Adam and Eve were given the promise in Genesis chapter 3. Imagine all of the trials and difficulties that God's people waited through, waiting for King Jesus to arrive. And through it all, there is a clear and consistent call from the Lord that as His people waited for Him, they were to trust Him. They were to believe in Him. They were to follow Him. And they were to love Him. For God's people now, living today, the first advent is not future for us. It's something that we remember and we celebrate. But now, as God's people, we are waiting for Jesus' second advent For the arrival of King Jesus the second time. 
And we as God's people are to wait with the same kind of expectation as the 8th century B.C. people of God had for his first arrival. Isn't that what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8 when he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I mean, if anything has brought that home to us, is it not this year? Is it not 2020 that has brought this home of what it means to groan inwardly for the second coming of our Savior? The creation is groaning and we are groaning ourselves inwardly and we are waiting eagerly. But here's what I want you to realize as we finish this morning. The hope that God's people have today for the second coming of our King is a hope that is even greater than the hope of the people of Micah's day waiting for the first coming of the Savior. Our hope is an even greater hope because we know what happened with the first advent. And we know that King Jesus came and has purchased us. And if we know that, then we remember what Paul said in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see what Paul's saying. For Christians living today who know the first advent, who know what God has done, who know that God did not spare His own Son, but sent Him to the cross to purchase and to pay for us that we might be part of the flock. How will He not also with Christ graciously give us everything we need to persevere to the end? That truth must be driven deeply into our heads and our hearts as we go through trials and temptations and even times of despair. Whether we're going through the present trials of the pandemic or going through incredible political turmoil or whether we have fears that that our sin is finally going to overtake us and that God will give up on us at some point and forsake us. Whether we're going through marital tension and discord, whether we are going through the trials of of children pushing boundaries, whether we are experiencing loneliness and a fear that no one will ever truly know us and love us, whether we have a lack of vocational progress and a fear of financial security. He who did not spare his own son gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things. All things that we need for enduring to the end. King Jesus is the overlooked king. He is the shepherd king. He is the global king. He is the future king. And because he is, we should be filled with all hope and encouragement and strength as we wait eagerly for his second advent. Let's pray together.
Father, we confess that it is so easy for us to lose hope. Whether because of trials and tribulations in our own lives, or simply because we look out and see what's happening in the world around us, it is easy for us to lose hope. It is easy for us to despair. This week, we know it will be easy for us to lose hope. And so, Father, we pray that in those moments when the evil one would speak lies into our hearts and into our heads, we pray that your word would ring louder still and that you would fill us with the truth that our shepherd, the good shepherd who has laid down his life for us, is standing and shepherding his flock. And as we meditate on that, Father, give us the strength that we need, that we might be people of hope and faithfulness, and that we would truly believe your goodness and grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.